Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to the survival of humanity, to making conscious evolution a possibility. Now in this second series of the podcast, we're branching out to find people who are using these tools. This is where we explore the interface between science and spirituality, between politics and philosophy, creativity and activism, and everything that helps us move towards a place where a new way of being is the next obvious step. And in this episode, my guest is Daniel Thorson of the absolutely groundbreaking Emerge podcast. Podcasts can be many things, but there are few that explore so deeply and with such absolute integrity and rawness of being the edges of human potential and how we might be what we need to be in this era of the Anthropocene. Daniel lives and studies at the Monastic Academy for the Preservation of Life on Earth in Vermont and has spent many thousands, tens of thousands of hours in meditation and in the study of Buddhist philosophies and the inquiries as to what that is. He has one of the most engaged and engaging minds that I have heard anywhere in this field. And he has a particular interest in how spiritual practice can make the world a more just and equitable place. And in this podcast we have what I hope is a discussion that really takes us deeply into the experience of what it is to be what we need to be for the world, of how that feels, of how it manifests, of how we can explore it more deeply, and of where that might begin to take us. So, let's introduce Daniel Thorson, and I hope you enjoy it. Daniel, welcome to Accidental Gods. Mm. It's a real pleasure to have you here. And I want to dive in, um, because I'm hoping that quite a lot of our listeners will have listened to the Emerge podcast, and if they don't, they will go off and listen to it now. And so I want to pick up, in a way, where that left off. And towards the end of the episode, the last episode with Rob Berbea and Jamie, you offered a quote from the Listening Society. Mm. And I wondered if you could remember that and if you'd share it with us again now and if we could use that as our springboard into a deep dive into everything that that unfolds. Does that feel all right? Sure. Yeah. If I remember correctly, I was the quote that I was referencing was something like, he or she who dies with the most perspectives wins. Is that yes, the one that you're... I, I, yeah. Yes, and what you said at the time was she who dies having mastered the most perspectives mm-hmm. wins. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was one of those... It, it had that kind of Zen koan effect of of opening all the gates in my brain and they all leapt mm-hmm. open simultaneously and all the little resources ran out <laughs> in many different directions. Mm-hmm. And I thought that. So if we were to unpick and let's, leaving aside the winning and losing, which feels, let's not go there, but go instead into the the value of mastering many perspectives and how we might, in practical terms, do that. Mm. Mm. 
Hmm. Yeah, I think that for me, to the degree that I have, as you say, mastered many perspectives, or, you know, for me, it's more about taking on a multiplicity of perspectives. I do that, it seems, reflecting on my life uh, because of two major forces. One is um, curiosity, like this kind of fire I feel to, to know reality more deeply in all its ways that I can. And that's a kind of like relationship of love in, in my world. Um, and then the other is a, is, a, is a feeling of deep care, like w- wanting to care for this, this world and, and some sense that the more that the more ways of knowing that I can inhabit and move from, the more opportunities and refinement and sensitivity that care can um, manifest as. And so if you, I think if for me, it's like, it it can get really um, abstract if we just talk about taking on perspectives, like without being grounded in the Mm. motivational forces that would cause somebody to be called forth beyond whatever perspectives they're currently um, in, whether they're trapped in them or they love them or whatever. Um, and so I think that if you really connect with those two forces, or I'll say, speak for myself, to the degree that I'm connected with those two forces, I inevitably um, explore many perspectives, perhaps master many perspectives. And um, it does seem like that's part of what's really necessary at this, um, in this planetary transition. Thank you. And so, so many different routes already. In the mastering of perspectives, do you, in your own practice, from your own perspective, come back to a stable baseline and then, as if, as if we were the spokes of a wheel, come back to the center of the wheel and then explore another way to get to the rim and then come back? Or is it less well-defined than that? I'm curious about this question. Can you can you say more about where you're where you're coming from with it? So yeah. I'm so I'm coming from a variety of places. I'm coming from that podcast and talking, listening to Rob Bay, and it took me about five listens probably to begin to get to grips with it. He speaks of coming back to a place of clarity and a place of emptiness, from which then to explore different perspectives, different aspects of reality. Mm, mm. And and my own experience is that I have baselines that feel almost empty. Mm. I, I hesitate to suggest that I've ever got to complete emptiness, but that I can go off and explore ways of being, ways of looking, ways of visioning. Mm. And then I tend to come back to somewhere that feels like home. Mm. But I think that home is probably another perspective. So just in terms of the actual practice of this, I'm wondering Mm. what your experience is. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense now? Yeah, it makes a lot more sense. And there's, um, as you said, there's a lot of roads uh, that come up in this this inquiry. Uh, One thing that comes to mind is actually a, um, a kind of principle, a rule of thumb that Rob Berbea often shares, 
and it's from the alchemical tradition. And the principle is, uh, mm. do not proceed until all is turned to liquid. And oh, that's so nice. yeah. And so, I would I would trouble this construction of such a thing as a baseline, right? Because one of my okay. um, assumptions, or one of the like the kind of like uh, ways that I model the ex experimentation that I engage in with my perception is that all of this is dependent, arises dependently on the way of participating that I invoke. And so whatever this baseline or home is, I'm constructing that. That's that, And it may be a beautiful place to rest, rejuvenate, reflect, but it too is a coming together of causes and conditions that um, if I take seriously this this um, superordinate goal of agility and malleability of perspectives, it too, you know, um, I, I don't want to get stuck there. Another thing that Rob Berbea says is that the only the only perspective that is problematic, the only perspective that is problematic is the one that you're stuck in, the one that you can't leave. Right. And so that's yeah. always for me in the back of my mind. Yeah. Like, am I? Do I think that this is it? Do I think that this is somehow like where it all gets to, or um, is this me? You know, that's the traditionally Buddhist mm. reflection. But um, yeah. So, in your everyday life, sitting here talking to me, or or eating your breakfast in the morning, let's assume you have breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, that where so I'm interested in the practical application of this. I'm in, interested yeah. for people who haven't got a lifestyle at the moment where they can sit and meditate for many hours, but they can maybe sit for some hours. Yeah. Um, and where does your mind rest when you're having breakfast, for instance? Is, mm. and, and, and this is not an unpicking of, of that. It's just a curiosity totally. of where are the baseline? Yeah, I think baseline, you're right. Baseline is a wrong word and I need to find another metaphor. But for me, there's a settling. Yeah. In a, in a sense, a texture within myself, and I completely know that this is, I bring this to yeah. me. And do I? So, would it be better to find a discomfort than an ease, mm. or to flow? What do you do when yeah. you're not in the process? It's a, it's a beautiful really? question. I mean, and there's a way in which, like, I can, there's so many ways to answer this, and uh, for for some reason, I feel called to 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 do it this way, which is that you're never not practicing according to this way of seeing, right? We're always relating to experience in a way that is itself part of the causes and conditions that gives rise to what we experience and then perhaps forget that we are participating in its construction and take to be real and, you know, uh, immalleable or unflexible. And so, you know, for me, step one is like, can I sort of go meta on my experience a little bit and just kind of like trouble if I feel like this is how it is or this is some kind of permanent situation that I find myself in. But the question that you're asking um, for me is one of the deepest questions. Like what, and the, the way I hear it, the way I interpret it is something like, where should I put my attention? Like where where should mm. I come into intimate connection with in all of this experience that I find myself 
inexplicably embedded in. And um, it, I mean, it's a deep question. Like it depends on what you want. It depends on what, what world you're attempting to create. Um, and it depends on, you know, all the causes and conditions that are present. Now I'll say in a very prosaic way for me during breakfast, like one, it depends. Is my heart feeling um, some kind of like emotional charge that I, I want to like feel into and, and uh, um, invite into the open and kind of uh, soothe or something like that? Um, am I feeling inspired and I want to kind of draw that out or feel that in my body? Am I too much in my head so I need to feel my butt on the seat? You know, mm, and so it's really right. like this. Yeah, and, and taste your. Yeah, problem. and so it's a really sensitive dance, and that's why I think for me, like there is this kind of superordinate goal of malleability and agility and sensitivity, rather than like oh, and and this is I think a bit different than a lot of meditative traditions who are just like yeah, the answer to your question, Manda, is just focus on the breath of your nostrils. <laughs> and to me, that seems like a very boring answer. Mm. Yeah, and 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 I would struggle with that answer to understand how we as a species might transcend ourselves. I, I you know I, I await someone able to explain that. Whereas your explanation makes my heart dance, mm. and I can feel the real wish to explore in that mm. way more deeply. Whereas you know the breath at my nostrils is a fascinating objective. Observation, but I think for me, when I'm doing that, I'm training myself to stand on the knife edge of the moment so that I can do it through the day, not particularly because the breath in my nostrils is a is that yeah. fascinating. Um, okay, so lots and lots of different ways. You said it depends on what world we're attempting to create. And this is, again, I'm exploring Buddhism from the outside as a, as a kind of occasional visitor. And my very basic Buddhism 101 understanding is, and you said it in our pre-podcast conversation, that everything is illusory, which I kind of get on a head level. But then one of the things that came out of your conversation with Rob Berbea was that we deconstruct and then we yeah. reconstruct and that we have the responsibility and the agency to reconstruct and you said it depends on what world we are attempting to create and that for me then then i feel the little nugget of gold in my hand and i want to go yes let's mm. yes what world are we attempting to create and where does that come from where does the desire come from where does mm -hmm. the framework of what we might want to create because actually in the end I think we both want to step into a place of absolute malleability from which something mm. arises but the desire to get there how, and where does the agency arise mm. and how do we implement that is this making sense as a question it is I, yeah I mean it's it's okay. um oof. I mean it's such a beautiful question and and for me part of the uh the reason why it's such a beautiful question is because it points so directly at the mystery that is the participation 
that we all have in life to moment to moment give birth to new worlds. And how does that happen? And what, from where does our desire come are such a beautiful inquiry, right? Like, and, and I love, I love framing it like, you know, so, so Jung calls desire a, a cosmogonic force, meaning that it's that which gives birth to the cosmos. Right. And we can ask ourselves, or I would invite us to ask ourselves, um, why do we want what we want? Hmm. Why do we want what we want? Because often in our world today, um, that is not a question that we end up asking. And there's so much fertility there. There's so much fertility in asking why do we want what we want. And it's a very disruptive question. And it actually, for me, it leads quickly into questions of, of soul and divinity and sacredness. Um, as long as we can sort of dematerialize our desires sufficiently to, to see them um, as being somehow alchemized or transformed into something less and more <laughs> than, than they, they appeared to be when they first arose in our consciousness. Um, and, and part of my assumption, I suppose, is that like desire is divine um, and it gets distorted or confused and then we just want like an ipod or something or something yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> rupert reed is an amazing philosopher at the uea and he's big in xr and, and in his latest book which is called um the civilization is finished which is kind of a step on from um deep adaptation and he describes a colleague who was in a supermarket and there was a a small child, an infant, a toddler, having a meltdown, screaming, I want, I want, I want. And mother's mm. standing there going, well, what is it? I'll get it. What do you want? And the child goes, I don't know. And I thought, mm. and it's just, like, this is, you just look around the world and you think, oh my goodness, we're all three-year-olds mm. in meltdown. And that's it. It's where mm. does the desire arise and then how do we channel it? Yeah. And I think yeah. what comes up for me then is that there are because the three-year-old toddler screaming, I want, I think there are layers of I want that are my unhealed traumas of childhood and my mm. feeling of being loved or not loved, which are pathologies of the 21st, or at least pathologies of modern humanity and probably mm. pathologies of modern, what Jonathan Haidt calls the weird society, Western, educated, industrial, yeah. rich, democratic we can, we can ditch the democratic, I'm just a weird society now. Um, <laughs> and yet, under if we can take a step back from that, there is the desire to be conscious, the desire to be part of a generative, regenerative, creative experience. And I think, so I'm guessing that when you talk about soul divinity and sacredness it's that mm. desire and i wonder can we unpick mm. what does divinity mean to you 
Yeah, so a lot of how I approach these kinds of topics is informed by um, the teachings of Rob Berbea and his soul-making dharma. And my sense of um, divinity and sacredness uh, lies in or sort of like emerges from a sense of like multidimensionality or unknowability or, or um, beyondness, hmm. right? The sense that um, what I'm seeing or what I'm perceiving that there are, there's, there's more there and that my heart is calling out to like, to, to know that, yeah. right? There's some kind of erotic pull to, to know that beyond, right? And that's even back to when I talked about curiosity, right? There's, there's a kind of um, development of that. So there's a, a divine curiosity, a divine uh, erotic wanting to know the object of the beloved object. And that could be anything. Hmm. It could be a person, a tree, the world, um, a, a, an ideology or a topic or idea, a value, and yeah. So the the the, the sacred for me is this this kind of like um, quality of relationship and endless emergence into novelty and new dimensionality and new refractions and new creations and playful embraces of paradox and strangeness and you know all the all the things kind of mm. it seems to be what uh for me at least it seems it's it's like i can look back on my life and see that that has always been calling me forth and uh the more directly that i can acknowledge that motivation and that love the more closely i kind of can uh, be in that sort of, I would say like, um, almost like, it's almost like sexual tension, right? Cause you mm. never actually know it. Yeah. You never actually know it. And that's the point. And, and part of the way that I think our world currently shuts down this dance is by boxing things in and relieving ourselves of the mystery because we think that we ought to know with certainty, which, um, yeah. is a great way to kill divinity. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. And in the seeking then of, in this playful fluidity, mm. we, we are unboxing and then, and then so I have a conceptual, I, I feel my heart is, is singing and is open and I feel a kind of heart-based vibration that says, yes, this is right. And in a way, mm. I don't want to spoil that by asking head-based questions. So maybe I'll leave the head-based <laughs> questions for later. Actually, well, it's, it's, I mean, it's it's really interesting because because like lo logos and and ideas and the mind is also an object of of this sacred dance. Like we can, I mean, I love okay. ideas, and part of it is just um, not. Uh, not related, relating to that in a way that opens up uh, that erotic relationship and doesn't close it down because the mind has this weird capacity to do both. Like it can mm. both um, open the world and it can also close it down. Like concepts have these really, this, this kind of like Janus faced capacity or possibility. And most people, I think, or many people, 
have experienced concepts being used to shut down this whole world that we're talking about. Mm. And that's how I think they've been used a lot in like modernity. But it doesn't have to be that way. And I personally feel very like inspired by the possibility of using concepts as a way to fertilize and open and kind of impregnate this sensibility. Um, And so okay let's yeah, explore then let's <laughs> thank you all right that gives me permission to open into so in my previous conversation to this one i was talking to a lady rabbi who has set up a school for hebrew priestesses she's the only hebrew high priestess for thousands of years and we ended up talking about the hebrew concept of divinity and particularly the the one that is described in the kabbalah in which which comes came as close as I understand it to my felt sense of what I would call the all that is, which is timeless and boundless and feels to me to if I give it words, then the words that come to me are raw, wild compassion. I think I need the adjectives because otherwise mm. compassion feels a bit of a tame thing to me, mm. but I suspect that's mm. mind stuff. And that that we got to a place where this exists and connects to us in the shamanic realities or in the Hebrew realities through what we might call gods, but that gods are are small manifestations of something that is infinite and has and boundless and and is that curious the source of our curiosity and the object of our curiosity. Mm. And mm. so I'm feeling that we, we're heading, that this is heading to the same place. And then I'm remembering that when we mm. had our conversation mm. before, I had a kind of a glib frame that all spiritual paths are heading to the same place. And you said, but no, in Buddhism, everything is an illusion. And that's, and yet what I'm feeling is that we have a space of this energy, this object of our erotic desire and our curiosity and and that and for me the felt sense of that kind of heart exploding opening of this feels alive to me that is not illusory and in mm. in your world is do mm. you find that you end up on a knife edge of a paradox where it is both illusion and not illusion? <laughs> Or is it? Is this something that is? This is real, and then we just have to explore what does real mean. Ah, uh, yeah. So it, I hope I didn't say in our previous conversation that Buddhism says that everything is an illusion, because that would be that would be inexact. Hmm. Um, it's better to say something like the Buddhism, as I understand it, would say that everything is constructed, hmm. or. Um, to be a little bit more annoying, they would say something like, everything is neither real nor not real, right? And that's the yeah. middle way. Yeah, okay. And what that looks like, uh, or what that, what that, my experience with that in, in, in life is that it's a, it, it is at first a razor's edge, which becomes a very wide highway, right? It's, it, it seems like very hard to nail that weird space between real and not real, but actually that is a space that gives permission to everything to be as it is. And so 
Uh, right. That, yeah, that's what comes up for me after hearing you, your share. So I'm feeling this in my heart space. This is back to, so I have a construct, which I find useful on occasion, particularly when I'm teaching the shamanic stuff of head mind, heart mind, gut mind, and, and can we bring those all into coherence? And, and yes, obviously they're not separate, but my head mind has a tendency to want to box and frame and structure things, and my heart mind is much more fluid and flowy. And mm. this feels as if my heart mind can find a place where reality and not reality are a broad path, and then my head mind can relax and not have to box mm -hmm. stuff. Does that feel like yeah. a, an yeah. accurate? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, that's certainly my experience. And uh, uh, to, yes, yeah. And a lot of this is just to relieve us of the burden of thinking that we need to figure things hmm. out definitively. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. On a very like grounded level, uh, it, it's it, it seems like a lot of how this path is constructed. And this is, you know, me just speaking as a practitioner. I'm, I'm not, I've only been doing this I know, this but that's thousands of hours, Daniel. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it, it, it is that, is that it, 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 um, it's all, it, it's all in service of liberating us. It's not true. Mm -hmm. it, the path itself is neither real nor not real. Okay. The, the teachings are neither real nor not real. They are also to be burned up okay. in the end in order to liberate us and, and allow us to walk freely uh, and fluidly and mallea malleably yeah. through the world and through our experience. Yay. Yeah. Glorious. Yeah. And, and I think the, the really exciting thing for me too is, um, and, and I will say too, for folks that are listening, um, a lot of what I've been saying about soul and divinity and sacredness, uh, most Buddhists would not be down with okay. that. That wouldn't be like, uh, or like the sacredness of desire. That's non-standard Buddhist oh, dogma. You're you going to be not, drummed out of the Buddhist uh, brownies. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, Possibly but uh, uh, so just just to say that and delineate that, that that's pretty. That's like a, a, a new thing. That's a pretty recent. That's as I said, largely based in Rob Berbea's soulmate. Feels really alive. Those though. Are, feels. And, you know, it's yeah. real, not real, but it feels good, and it, yeah. I think it's extremely beautiful. Um, but the, the the fruit of that kind of way of approaching things is that I feel then that I'm liberated to then participate in in you know elements of Jewish mysticism if that calls mm -hmm. me forth because that's what the freedom. So I can go to a you know um, like I have recently gone to a evangelical Christian you know kind of rock and roll Sunday. Wow. Uh, celebration and it was amazing. <laughs> it was so beautiful because I could bring forth what was meaningful to me in that right. context. I had that fluidity, and and for for me, that's so much of what uh, is exciting as a possibility is that it, we come to a place where we can embrace all the faces of divinity yeah. and sacredness and beauty and interesting experiments in how to bring that forth. Different. Uh, logo, lo logoi, you know, mm -hmm. different ide ideological complexes, different uh, psychotechnologies, different practices, different sorts of relationships. All of that is fair game, is fertile territory and to fun. play. And 
and, and fun. And, and fun. I'm familiar with um, yeah. Matthew yeah. Fox and his Order of the Sacred Earth and what he's trying to do there. Only a little bit, only a little bit, yeah. Yeah, because no, it sounds like that also, I'm looking at that and thinking, gosh, that looks interesting because, yeah. Anyway, that, that was a complete aside. So, oh gosh, so many things. Um, so this is my stuff and may not be your interest at all. Have you ever explored the neurobiology of what you think? Okay, let me take this back a little bit. Years ago, when I was reading about the early studies that the Dalai Lama instigated at Boulder, and then they moved on into the HeartMath Institute, and they came out with their EEG equipment and to put on the heads of the, in those days, Tibetan Buddhist monks who fell about laughing because the crazy white people were measuring their heads when everybody knows you should be measuring your heart. Mm. And and there are a lot of questions about to what extent does the activity of our brain reflect our consciousness. But I am looking at some of the EEG work and thinking that it's it is really interesting that when we move from beta to alpha to theta to delta to gamma to hypergamma, it is reflecting something. Mm. And so and this is just because I have a back history of being a neurobiologist. Mm. But um, is that something you've explored? And do you have ideas of where, if that's a door that opens for you, opens ideas? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I have a pretty long history with what um, we might call contemplative technology. And the previous to hosting my podcast, I worked at a company called Buddhist Geeks. Mm. And that was one of the topics and themes that we really focused on, and one that I was really excited about because I have a long history with technology and the um, the idea that we could use technology to um, amplify or invoke or accelerate the journey towards awakening or just mindfulness in general um, is really interesting. I, I, I'm at a place now where I'm a lot more cautious about it, hmm. uh, partly because you, you end up creating... You, you, how do I say this? The mind will conform to whatever kind of incentives are presented to it through the technology that it is using to transform itself. So like I, for instance, use this Muse headband. Have you ever used a yes. Muse headband? <laughs> yeah. Well, so you know about this. So, so do you know how if you like kind of quote unquote meditate well, you get a bird? Yes. And you, and end, up, comes. you end up trying <laughs> to get more birds. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I got, I, I, yeah, I played like with this score, for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, and I just yep. could I could just get bird after bird yep. after bird. Yep. And yet I knew because I meditated for a <laughs> while like I wasn't really meditating. I was doing yeah. a thing. You're I making like, the birds happen. Yes. Yeah, I was I was conforming to what this technology thought meditation was at the expense of this playful, emergent, spontaneous life that meditation is attempting to get us to connect with. Yeah. And so like is it possible to use technology to kind of like accelerate these things? And I know of really freaking cool experiments being done with things like low-frequency ultrasound that seem to be able to just bump people directly into non-dual consciousness, wow. right? And it's like, 
that is an extraordinary power that we, I, I would just invite a lot of um, humility. Yeah. Uh, and one, humility, and two, talk with experts, right? There's a kind of sense that, oh, mindfulness is really simple. We're just training our brains. Well, talk to people who have been doing this for tens of thousands of hours and get yeah. their perspective on what is going on here. Mm. Because what is dangerous or what feels very dangerous is that we reduce this ancient, incredibly mysterious psychotechnology into neurophysiology and stress reduction. And, you know, that would be a tragedy for me. Um, And it's super cool. And I've played with, you know, binaural beats and EEGs and all that stuff, as long as it's held, I think, in the right, with the right view. Um, then it's it's yeah. awesome and legit, and I love it. But. Yeah, and because you are someone who's done tens of thousands of hours, and so we are asking yeah. you. And, yeah, um, <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, because I have the muse, and and to my great shame, I was really enthusiastic about it with some of my students, and then I haven't got around to going, guys. Actually, I got to the point where I couldn't stop the birds. And I'd get mm. up and walk around the room and put on Facebook and the birds still didn't stop. But I'm going, I'm really sure I'm not still meditating. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of, But then I found when I went out into the world that the bird song, it, I mean, it was an interesting experience. And I had, would, I tried to work out, I, I downloaded the app that was supposed to tell me what actually my brainwaves were doing that was triggering the birds. So I could see because I'd go out into the world and the birds would sing and my brain would flip into that particular little box that I mm. put it in put my attention in mm. to get the birds to happen. This is mm. really interesting. I have no idea what's going on. Um, so, so yes. But then, so then we have a thing of, okay, this is taking us somewhere I wanted to go by a slightly different route. That's fine. Because mm. your podcast and Accidental Gods as a Project are exploring the potential for humanity. I, I have a kind of idea of where it's, want to shepherd everybody and I think yours is a more open inquiry but still we're looking at the fact that we have this um, moment-to-moment capacity to give birth to new worlds as you said earlier and I look at the world to which we are currently giving birth and and I have moments of deep shame and deep grief and deep horror and deep terror and deep rage at the unraveling of the biosphere and everything else that goes with it. And yet, I feel the capacity for humanity to be in love with the divine and to be beautiful and glorious and extraordinarily creative is unmatched in our history. Mm. And I look at the two of these and I wonder how can we, how can we in our moment-to-moment create a world that moves forward into something that I would believe to be mm. flourishing. I'm trying to create, give as much space as possible. And most of us mm. aren't living in Buddhist monasteries with tens of thousands of hours of meditating. And in the time scale that yeah. if deep adaptation is right, we're not going to get 7 billion people to that place. But we need to get 7 billion people somewhere other than they are now. And I, I thought for a while that something like the Muse headband or you know, mindfulness apps or whatever was a step in the right direction. And 
And I'm increasingly less sure of that. Mm. And I wonder if you have any insight of, other than bringing everybody into a Buddhist monastery and mm-hmm. sitting them on a cushion, mm. how, how do we help the world, the woman with three kids under the age of 10, the guy holding down three zero-hours jobs, one of them with Amazon, who are trying to grind him into the dust, or whatever, how do we shift? Fundamentally, I don't, I don't know. And I think that it's really important that we all admit that. Everybody who, who's investigating this space, everybody who's like very interested in this kind of question, yeah. none of us know. And even the people who position themselves or we position yeah. as experts, they do not know. This system is so complex and uh, the exponential forces in play are, are there's, there's no way to know. There's no way to know. Um, and, um, I spent a week in Costa Rica with Joe Brewer, uh, who talks, I think really beautifully about, um, the dynamics of planetary collapse, which he, I think quite persuasively argues we've essentially been in for the past, say 70 years at least. And now we're starting to see, certain systems unravel. And if you look at how systems, complex systems and metasystematic collapse dynamics happen, uh, you know, certain systems start to collapse and they shift load onto other systems and those shift loads on other systems. And perhaps at some point you do have a kind of more catastrophic collapse where things really do start to kind of stop working the order of complexity of the civilization mm. just drops uh which you know is a, is a um abstract way of saying that a lot of the things that we depend on and appreciate about yeah. life now just don't yeah. work garbage doesn't get picked up please don't yeah. function whatever um and so for me like uh is there a way to thread the eye of the needle and want that's one metaphor or is there some kind of black swan that might actually prevent this sort of thing and um what i look to is one like just emergence in general the the kind of as we've talked about so far there there is this unbelievable generativity and resilience of the human spirit Hmm. that I just like, it's easy to forget that they too are complex actors within this complex system of systems. And we just don't know how we're all Hmm. going to respond to this. We, this planet has never seen this before. We don't know. So there's that humility again. We don't know. And it might be that we'll kind of like figure it out. I mean, I don't see a future in which lots and lots of uh, death uh, doesn't isn't coming our way. I, that for, for me, in my sense making, it doesn't seem like a possible future, that there isn't some mm. kind of contraction. Uh, we're just so out of mm. balance right now uh, with the global supply chains. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. Um, the other is actually what you said, you know, that there could be some kind of radical mixture of 
contemplative technology and psychedelics and a global movement of people supporting each other at becoming uh, kind of emancipating themselves from the worst aspects of the system like that that seems possible mm. if we had enough time um, and uh, beyond that you know I, I look at things like um, the maybe some kind of decentralized autonomous organizational structure comes into being that really allows people to make the leap in, out of those terrible, terrible situations that you mentioned that, I mean, or the one that you mentioned, like mm. uh, working 80 hours a week and barely scraping by or something like that. Like, I think you're, you're right to point that out. There's, um, it's for, for those of us in the kind of transformational world, it's, it's, uh, hard to imagine how dire that mm. kind of situation is. Uh, and then the last thing I suggest is that there are a lot of people, very, 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 very smart people, the smartest people I've ever encountered, working on this. Mm. Working on this. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, I, I've heard some ideas, some of which I'm not really allowed to to talk about, but that feel like credible and people much smarter than me think they're credible and um you know maybe they'll maybe they'll maybe they'll be able to kind of hit the trim tab and the bucky yeah. fuller metaphor of the ship and they'll just kind of like they found the leverage yeah. point and then stuff starts to spin in a different direction it's yeah. uh, i don't know um I, I will say that that the, where this question brings me though is is back here to my community back to my relationships back to my life and it's much more about how can i be a steward of all the systems that i interact with um, how can i be a hero here how can i be proud of my participation here because this mm -hmm. is where i live mm -hmm. this is you know game a game b this is the game yeah. that I'm playing, here I am. Um, you know, if everything falls apart, I want to do that beautifully. If we thread the needle, I want to do that beautifully. If nothing, somehow nothing goes wrong and this infinite growth system <laughs> keeps infinitely growing on a finite playing nothing field and I have to yeah. throw out basic logic, <laughs> then you know, I'll do that beautifully too. Um, and so that's that's ultimately where I go yeah. with this kind of question, mostly okay. because yeah. I just and, and it no was idea. yes, and because we can't have any idea. <laughs> that's the point of complex systems: is when they emerge, whether it's into chaos or into a new system, you you can't. No system is no no problem is solved from the mindset yeah. that created it, all that kind of thing. Um, but I was, yeah. but still, I think with your ten thousand hours and many more. And that sense of the erotic connection to the all that is, however we frame that. I wondered if, yeah, because it. So I, I, I loop back to this, and I think this may be ushered by my own fear and dread of the alternatives. But that consciousness itself is generative, and. In out of that generation, out of that generativity, arises you know many times in the history of consciousness to get us to here. There has been something arising that was not predictable from the moment before, and that, but mm. that now we are 
capable of our own consciousness. I think, you know, leaving aside the people who aren't listening to these conversations, which are you know, hmm. 99% of people, yeah. maybe, <laughs> Plus seven. who just aren't aware yeah. that we're on the precipice of a cliff or whatever. Um, those of us who are kind of have have made sense out of are kind of looking up and being like, oh, wow, we're headed towards a cliff perhaps. Uh, I would say like, and this is Jordan Greenhall's advice, um, uh, be comfortable with your death. Yeah, yeah. Like as best you can, be comfortable with your death. And that that it seems is almost like a precondition to really be of service in this situation. Um, and part of what for me that means is, is um, live in integrity with what your heart knows is right as best you can. If you haven't already been doing that, do it now and then do it. Yes. Yes. Forever. Yes, because you don't want to when death is coming. <laughs> Until yes. you die. Yes. No, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and so use this, use this crisis as yeah. an excuse or an invitation to do the work with your, yes. To do that. Yes. To do the work yeah. with your yeah. whole being. Yeah. Because global cataclysm aside, you know, you could get hit by a car tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's probably not very likely out in the middle of nowhere in Vermont, but you know, we are going right. to die. That's one of the very few certainties. And and we don't know when it's going to happen. And that's yeah, the other right. one. So, yeah. so, so living every moment. You know, that was back to Castaneda. Yeah. Live with death yeah. over your left shoulder as your advisor every moment of every day. And it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's funny because like, you know, something might, the teacher here at the, the Monastic Academy where I live, he says, um, the mm. crisis has always been here. Mm. This is not new. Yeah. The Buddha saw it, right? The Buddha saw it. And he was like, oh, this is this will not do. <laughs> so so like, thank goodness now it's right in our faces. We can't ignore yeah. it. Here we are, here we go. Like, use it. And that and that desperation you feel, mm. like if mm. you feel it, that fear, that anxiety you feel, like mm, yes. that's precious. Because yes. it calls fuel. us out of the hypnosis of business as usual into a point yes. where action is yeah. essential. And then we just have to work out what what is it that I need to be doing? And you're right, being f- making mm-hmm. peace with yeah. our own mortality and finding wh- who do I want to be? If this is my last moment on earth, how do I want to live this in every way of living? Mm. Yeah, if, if only that washed across the world, that would be quite remarkable, wouldn't it? The world would be a different well, place. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're heading... Yeah. Yeah. We're heading towards uh, quite a lot of time passing. Um, so I have some some slightly smaller questions. Uh, this And one of them, actually, the first of these is, is entirely mm. for myself, which is, do you dream of meditating? Mm. Can you say more? What, what do you mean by dream? So my own dreaming practice is that when I become lucid, my intention then is to settle into mindfulness within the dream. Within the last year, as I've been building accidental gods, I've found that in the non-lucid dreams, so this is night dreams, I'm I am asleep, and I have begun to dream of circumstances. I'm in a city, I'm looking around, I see very wealthy kind of hedge funders 
being wealthy hedge funders and I see incredibly poor people being downtrodden and I feel all that I feel under those circumstances of this is unjust, it's unequal, it's it's horrendous. A bit of me wants to be as rich as a hedge funder, a bit of me is desperately wanting to bring the poor people out of poverty. Mm. And in the dream, for the first time, I sat down in the middle of the road to seek for the place of non-duality within myself Mm. in the dream Mm. as my response to that circumstance, which was interesting. You know, I, I just watch the flow of my dreams to see what they bring up more than anything else. But I'm I'm just curious with somebody, I'm in deep envy of your 10,000 hours of sitting <laughs> and endeavoring not to be, um, mm. whether that then feeds into your dream life really is the core question. No, no I, I you know, I, that's a very um, underexplored practice for me. And I would appreciate any pointers to, to how to kind of uh, step in that direction. Uh, Most of the way that I use dreams is um, in terms of harvesting imagery that I then intensify or amplify when I meditate the next day. So there might be some image that feels really poignant or profound or fertile, and then I'll kind of take that and resonate with it in my practice. But but the actual like dream yoga or doing work in the dreams, I, I have not yet really explored that, but I'm curious too. Okay. So I think the intent to do it is probably the most important thing, to be honest. And in terms, I think there's a lot, I again, we could get very heady and there's a lot of very structured stuff around dream yoga that I explored and would recommend not exploring because mm. I think it's it's an avenue of self-judgment because it's hard. Mm. And, and it may work a long way down the line, but it, it's much easier to be kind to ourselves and just to invite in our dreams other teaching, I suppose. I mean, there's a yeah. whole lot of shamanic stuff. Yeah, if, if you have like an 80-20 on like how to kind of just kickstart that whole arena, I would love that. I'm about to go on like a very yes, long you are. solo retreat. So um, it, it seems like a good time to perhaps invite that. Okay, let me think about that and I'll, I'll write you an email because yeah, I, off the yeah. top of my head that would be other than setting the intent, but I'll, sure. I'll think hard about that because sure. it, it it is my field, but I don't want to drag you into shamanic realities. That's not necessary. Um, okay, so some quick fire things towards the end. Um, first of which is, what have you read recently that really inspired you that we can share with people listening? Hmm. Hmm. And and I'll need to put links in the show notes. So. Um, yeah. Oh, um, the, the, the book, The Overstory. Oh, yes. Yes, one. I just bought that. Oh, such a beautiful book. I was okay. just so moved by it. So you know. Right. I mean. Oh. Right. I haven't started reading it, but I bought it because I thought, gosh, that looks good. So yes, oh, right. I will link yeah. to that. So that, that, that Even just saying the, wor- the, the name of the book again, my whole yeah. body kind of tinkles. It's, it's just yes. such a beautiful journey. Yeah. Yes. Right. I'll read it next. And then on a similar basis, is there a podcast that really has has made that body tingle recently? Mm. Not including Emerge. Oh. Oh is, boy! Yeah, so it's. I feel a little bit uh, not ashamed, but like shy, shy to admit this. But I don't. I haven't been listening to podcasts at all recently. Okay. All that I listen to um, is uh, are talks by Rob Berbea. I think okay. that that's what excites me. He just released a new retreat, um, and that's like thirty hours of material. So I've just been working my wow. way through that. Um, okay. Okay. Well, that's good. Get people to something to do. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I think, there's, there's hundreds of hours of it. Thirty hours. So there we go. <laughs> um, and I think I think we answered this earlier, which was what one thing could we do now 
the, the people listening to make a difference to the world. But but you said really come to grips with your own death. Is there anything, I mean, that feels to me that's huge and is a practice that everyone can undertake with benefit. Would there be anything else that leaps to mind? <laughs> hmm, I got how. Uh, I think that's pretty good, and there's lots of good ways to do that. You can look up the um, five remembrances of Buddhism, one of which is remembering that you will die. Uh, that's that's uh, a practice that in a lot of Buddhist schools they do like every morning before they meditate. Um, oh, okay, and yeah, that that seems like a great a great thing for everybody to do. Just uh, okay. Uh, and then one last one. This is entirely mine. I wrote it on uh-huh. a post-it at the end of our previous conversation because uh-huh. my great dream is to set up a shamanic monastery. Uh-huh. So if you were setting up a monastery from scratch, I want the I want the eighty twenty on setting up a monastery. Uh-huh. <laughs> monastery building one hundred and one. What what would be your core foundational intents in setting or practices? What would you say if you were going to set up a monastery from scratch? What would be your basis? Yeah. Um, uh, well, I would say you if if you're go if you want to build a monastery, go and live in a monastery for a little while because uh, there's so much that you learn just from entering into that space, even for a day or a week. And then the second thing I'd say is uh, whether you can do that or not, and you you, you should if you can, is mm. um, get somebody who has lived hopefully for many years in a monastery to consult with you because there's just like in starting a business, there's a Mm. lot of mistakes you can make that will uh, ruin you. Yeah. I would and, say, and Daniel, yeah. you are my expert. When I, when sure. the monastery starts, it's you. <laughs> yeah, well, and so and so, you know, there it, it, and and in lieu of being able to live in a monastery like um build a functional intentional community and see how that like yeah. cuz a lot of the difficulties of running a monastery are are similar in my experience like I've lived in co-ops and things like that to to that sort right. of environment. Um although even more intensified because everybody's like meditating at least in our case meditating intensively so all of their stuff mm. is kind of like you know they're they're they're, they're going through it real hard yeah. they can't escape into their nine to five everybody's just yeah. there all the time yeah um yeah. but i mean so and and as a kind of side note uh or not side note but relatedly um the monastic academy where i live you know our goal is to um fertilize a planetary movement of new mon- monastic institutions. And so if you're listening, uh, or you, Manda, if, if you want to collaborate mm-hmm. with us to um, build new institutions of this sort, uh, please reach out. Like That's something that we are, as an organization, dedicated to. So uh, we have now uh, three locations. Uh, we hope to have a fourth in the next couple of years. Uh, and we're just going to keep going as long as there's um, hunger and resource to do it. Oh, Yes. That makes my heart sing. Right. Okay. That's the deal. We'll do it. <laughs> All right. I think we're there. Thank you so much for this, Daniel. This has been so heartfelt hmm. and fertile and beautiful and everything that I hoped it would be. So thank you very, very much. And yeah. I wish you well in your three months intensive solitude. <laughs> thank you, Amanda. It yeah, you're, you are uh, just such a beautiful interviewer. I'm really struck by your skill and your um, 
the space that you're holding. It's, uh, yeah, I can feel my being kind of relax into the safety I feel with you, even though I know that other people will be listening to this conversation. So, um, that's a, that's a wonderful gift that you're giving to me and to the, to the world. Well, thank you. And if I have that, I learned it from you. Mm-hmm. So listening to the Emerge podcast. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope we'll have the chance to talk again at some point. Yeah, me too. So huge thanks to Daniel for the depth and the clarity and the heartfelt sense of that. Even in the interview, in the engaging of it, this is a person who is so familiar with his own process and has such capacity to explore it in the moment. And I hope that some of that came across. Certainly in the conversation, it felt to me as if we were exploring pathways that were opening up ways of being for me and therefore, I hope, for you. So next week we have a new guest and in the meantime, thanks to all of you for being there. Thanks to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tilleray for designing the website and for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods. And if you want to visit the website, if you want to know more about us or to join the membership program, we're at accidentalgods.life on the web and on various other social media. If you like what you hear, five stars and a review helps Google to take us seriously. But really, if we're going to spread the word, we'll do it by word of mouth. So tell your friends. Tell your family, tell your colleagues, tell your local XR group, anyone you know who wants the world to be a more generative and beautiful place, because that's where we're heading. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.